ahead and uh, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. We are in uh, at the penultimate point of our series on the resurrection. Um, our, our goal here is to, is to uncover from the Bible uh, why does the resurrection matter so much, right? We, we know it's important after all our biggest holiday of the year, Easter, Resurrection Sunday, is centered on the fact that Christ is risen bodily, historically, from the dead. We worship as Christians on a Sunday because Jesus was raised from the dead. Clearly, um, Sundays and, and the resurrection are sort of important. But why exactly? And what we have seen that, uh, that the benefits of Christ's resurrection, if we receive it by faith, includes uh, our salvation, um, uh, our life, not just eternally when we die, but even now, comfort we've looked at, assurance we explored last week. And uh, we are wanting to look at uh, the issue of justice, that Christ was raised for justice, our understanding of right and wrong, just and unjust, righteous and unrighteous, comes from the fact that Christ is risen from the dead. Acts chapter 17, if you'll stand with me out of reverence for God's word, we want to start in verse 16. Luke, the physician, writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beginning in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him. And as he saw that the city was full of idols, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. For they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. <coughs> Excuse me, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the, by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Let's go to the Lord for 
Our Father, ask as always, as we open up your word, you would open our hearts, that we would receive your word, our mind, that we would understand it, our eyes, that we would see your kingdom, our ears, that we would hear and heed your word, our mouth, that we'd speak the truth of the gospel to ourselves, to one another in love, and to this lost and dying world. May you open our hands and our feet that we would be the hands and feet of Jesus, transformed by the gospel because of the work of your spirit who points us to Jesus. Lord, without the resurrection, where would we be? Our understanding of what is right and wrong comes from the fact that Christ is risen from the dead and he reigns supreme over his kingdom. Draw us to your kingdom and draw our city to your kingdom. And may I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. Be seated. I want us to take us back to a long time ago. In the land of America, the year is 2012. And leading up to April 2012 was a campaign known as Coney 2012. Does anybody remember this? If, if you're a millennial like me, you probably do. But Coney 2012 was an online phenomenon. It was launched by a YouTube video, one of the early viral YouTube videos, which at one point, for quite a while, was the most watched YouTube video in the world before Baby Shark took it over. Baby Shark's the number one YouTube video out there. That's what's wrong with America. Anyways, so the video was released, uh, and, and the idea was, we've got to stop Joseph Coney. Now, Joseph Kony is a warlord. He operates in northern Uganda and southern Sudan, and he is an evil person. Without a doubt, an evil person. Everyone agrees the guy, still living, still in operation, an evil person. He kidnaps children and either turns them into slaves or soldiers. He has killed countless number of people and, and caused all kinds of chaos and, and, and violence in the area. The person who, who started Kony 2012 had gone over into Uganda and witnessed this firsthand and became moved by something needs to be done here. So he launched the Kony 2012 campaign with that viral video. The idea is simply this. You watch the video, get all up in your fields, and you order the kit online for $30 in modern money. That's about $8,000. But for $30, you, you, you buy this kit, you get it in, it's full of posters and stickers and a t-shirt. And on a specific day in April 2012, when your parents are asleep, of course, you go out into the city and you cover the town with posters and, and spray paint and stickers. Why, you ask? Well, until Joseph Coney becomes the most famous person in the world, nothing will be done about it. These children will continue to be targeted. And so that was the idea. Thousands of people bought the kits. Tens of thousands of people bought the kits. And hardly anyone posted anything. And Joseph Coney is still in operation. What came out of the Coney 2012 uh, came a new term that has since been coined, and it might be even in the dictionary, I don't know. The term is slacktivism. It takes the term slacker and activism and puts them together. And the idea is that in the age of broadband internet and Wi-Fi and the telephone, and is, is that we can convince ourselves that we can be part of justice. We can be part of the right side of history. We can be doing something good without really doing anything. 
Chances are you and I both have been guilty of this without even knowing it. If a war would be launched and we're told what side to, 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 to support, we're going to put a certain flag or image or something on all of our Instagram accounts. If there's another riot in the street and, and we're told what side that we are to pick, and we'll make sure that it is, the, it is on our news feed on Facebook, that everybody knows what side of the store that we are on. We do this all the time. If you hit like, if you share this, if you do this or that, then you will be doing justice. All the while, we sit comfortably in our couches and our chairs, really doing nothing. But we convince ourselves that indeed we are. We're convinced that true justice comes from a click on a website. I'm convinced the Bible has a better picture of justice than that. The justice is something that is a concern of Christianity. Although if we were to do a strict exegesis of this passage, we would highlight a number of things. For the sake of time, I want us to focus on what Paul says about justice from here. And you want to notice that Paul's concern is that the Athenians get the resurrection. And if they get the resurrection and they believe the resurrection, out of that will come a right understanding of not just everything we've discussed previously, but that of justice. Two ideas, two words that Paul wants us to see on this. It relates to justice from this passage. The first is hope. Hope. In verse 16, Paul is waiting in Athens, right? He's waiting for the, 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 the rest of his crew to show up. Their, their flight was delayed, so he's just sitting around waiting. And he looks around, he, he sees that there are idols everywhere. You just, just idols everywhere you go. And he, he realized, here he was, uh, Paul has ADHD, right? He can't sit still, he can't wait on anything to happen. He has to do it himself. So, so he's sitting around and he realized, these are people who are spiritual but they lack revelation. And he can see it all around them. All of them are seeking truth. All of them are seeking love, seeking grace, seeking redemption, seeking assurance, seeking comfort, seeking life, and yet they have no revelation for it. Therefore, Paul must say something. And so he, he, he does what he always does. You can see it there starting in verse 17 as he starts in the Jewish synagogues. He always starts there. But then quickly he moves to the marketplace. That you see that at the end of verse 17. And he finds himself um, among the academics. Specifically, we have here mentioned the Epicureans and the Stoics. Now, I'm sure you studied them in your philosophy class in high school. Let me share with you what the Epicureans and Stoics were. They were opposite sides of the coin. The Epicureans were, were believed that, that we should indulge the flesh, that true happiness and joy and life should be, should be by indulging our every desire. The Stoics, as you can imagine, were the opposites. They were Stoic, if you will. They believed you should, you should rob yourself of the flesh. You should, you should deny your desires. You should do everything the opposite. And then walks Paul on Athenian uh, University with this message about the resurrection, and, and, and it seems odd to them. Think about it. you got the Epicureans and you got the Stoics. That would be like us today having an Amish grandfather and a non-binary feminist studies professor from San Francisco with an extra degree in potpourri uh, pronouns Z's herself, okay? Right? Having these two people together. Epicureans and Stoics. And you'll notice that usually when Paul starts preaching, people get angry. And Paul is used to going to a new city, telling people about Jesus, and they start picking up stones and axes and coming after him. 
In Athens, however, it isn't anger he experiences, it's confusion. What is this babbler trying to say to us? Now you'll notice there in verse 18, the reason is because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Paul didn't come here and pick a side who was more right than the other. Rather, he comes in and says that if you reject the gospel, if you reject the resurrection, both sides are wrong. I'm not here to pick a side. I'm here to proclaim good news. And without the revelation seen in Christ's bodily life and resurrection, they were in the dark. They call him a babbler, an interesting word. It, it describes a bird indiscriminately picking seed off the ground. It was used to describe people who, who, like in the age of the internet, pick what they like and they put it all together in an incoherent worldview. This is the worldview of your neighbor, by the way. This is the worldview of that weirdo from high school you're still friends with on Facebook. This is the, the worldview of most of us. We just pick and choose what feels right, and, and what comes out is nothing more than babbling. And like a bird indiscriminately picking seed off the ground. But you'll notice Paul's point here is that apart from the resurrection, what hope do you and I really have of justice? Not alone salvation, truth, grace, comfort, assurance, peace. Just in the area of justice, what hope do we really have? Think about what the story of the resurrection is. Christ enters into our world. That is unique in, in world religions. The eternal God who made the heavens and earth enters into our world, becomes one of us, walks among us, and experiences human evil and the ingenuity of human evil. So that at the birth of Christianity is an act of injustice by which God in flesh takes upon himself. Yet the story didn't end at the cross, but at the empty tomb. So Christianity comes and sees all the problems of the world, much, most of which is created by mankind, fallen mankind, and says, I don't know how we can solve this problem. But if God can turn graves into gardens, as we just sang, if he can turn seas into highways, if he can turn bones into armies, he can bring justice where there is unrighteousness. Paul says that we begin with hope. He's preaching Christ risen from the dead. And this is new to them. So new, they, they invent a word to describe him as a babbler. This is so new to us. There is no hope of true justice, whether you're addressing things like poverty or slavery or war or violence or racism or fatherlessness or the abuse of children, human trafficking, political corruption. There is no hope of overcoming it unless death itself has been defeated. Notice you get hope in verses 17, verses 16 to 21 rather. The second is assurance. One of the things that a lot of people like to do when it comes to this passage, they like to highlight Paul's strategy. So for example, that when Paul goes into the synagogue, he knows that everybody there has read the Old Testament and, and, and has the worldview of the Hebrew Bible. So they believe in a creator, they believe in the law, they believe in sin, they believe in the hope of the Messiah, all that sort of stuff. So Paul doesn't need to begin there. They, they're already there, right? Uh, so, sort of like if, if I meet another Louisville fan, 
There's no point in me talking about how awful Kentucky fans are. We're already there, right? We already agree on that, right? We, we've, we, we, we agree to it. So, so we can just bypass that. So too, Paul doesn't need to do that. However, when Paul is with the Gentiles who have no revelation, only human philosophy, he, he pauses and he goes all the way back to the things that he can assume that the Jews have, but he has to go back and to explain to the Gentiles. That's what Paul does here, is he goes all the way back to creation. Here's his point, just to summarize it. The living God cannot be brought down in the form of idols. You can't fashion God. He isn't limited by the art of humanity, which is good because I ain't artistic. And so, so to fashion God through the mind and the hands of man, and Paul says, that's, that's nonsense. It's nonsense. You can beautify this place with statues, and those statues are nothing because God is bigger than your imagination. Here, of course, he's quoting the second commandment. Don't make graven images of God because you can't. To do so diminishes the beauty, the power, and the sovereignty of God. So, so you can't bring God down in a form of idols and human religion. However, he argues, he can be made known. You can't fashion God so that he can fit on your mantle. That doesn't mean you can't know God, because you can. Notice there in verse 23, he, he highlights a particular uh, idol uh, to the unknown God. One of the things that archaeologists have given us is we have found such uh, altars. Uh, they usually say to the unknown gods, because it's a pluralistic, uh, a, a polytheistic world. Paul just uh, makes it singular because he, he's interested in saying, you've got all these gods that are meaningless, and you've got one looking for the unknown gods. Let me tell you about the God you don't know. And I can tell you who he is. And we have found several of these. You can, you can do uh, your own research on it uh, after service. But I want to highlight three things Paul says that you can know about this God to these Gentiles, right? They've never read the Bible. Three things he emphasizes. One, God is the creator of life. You see it there in verse 24. He is the God who made the world and everything in it, which means the genesis of everything is found in God himself. So, so, so this wasn't some primeval war between good gods and bad gods, and, and you hope the good, guides, the, the good guys win. No, no, no. This is, there is one God, creator of the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1 and 2, it is summarized. You see it there also in verse 25, he himself to all mankind, life, breath, everything. So it isn't just the world we live in, it's the lives that we live, trace their genesis, their origin to our maker. Secondly, he presents God as the redeemer of man. He's the creator of life, he's the redeemer of man. Verse 27, they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. He is actually not far from each of us. His message here is, is, is that many religions, God is up there, we are down here, and the purpose of religion is to climb the spiritual ladder to get up there. How do you climb it? Ritual, rhetoric, and works, right? You ask any person, should you go to heaven? Yeah, I'm a good person. That, 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 that's it. That's the religion. Virtually every religion presents that. If you do the ritual, if you say the right prayers, you, you pretend like you're a good enough person, God are like, all right, get in here, Right? So the idea is that God is distant. I must go to him. Paul's point is, is, is that we've distanced ourselves. God must come down to us. That's redemption. That's salvation. And the center of that story is, of course, in Christ, 
God who dwelt among us, he tabernacled, he templed among us, died and was raised again from the dead. Verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. God is not just the creator of life. He's the redeemer of man, if you would come and believe. Notice his third thing he says about God. He says that this God who created us, this God who is our redeemer, he's the executor of justice. Notice verse 31, he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. Your translation may say justice. It's the same word. In Greek, it's the same word. We, 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 and some translations will say righteousness. Some say justice. It's the same word, same meaning. His point is that if God is our creator, who has come down to become our redeemer, rest assured, he will execute justice. After all, isn't that the story of the gospel? Where there is sin, there is injustice. Where there is salvation and righteousness, there is the peace of divine shalom. Therefore, if you want true justice, what you need is for the creator to become our redeemer. And upon his shoulders lie all of our sins, all of our evil, all of our unrighteousness, all of our guilt and shame, and it is satisfied. So that at the resurrection, we are set free. You will not find justice where there is unrepented sin. But where there is righteousness, you will see shalom start to take place. But if we do not come to him as redeemer, rest assured, he says, God will execute his justice. You see his point. It isn't just that we hope that God will do something. That God will show up. That God's righteousness will be known. It is the assurance brought about by the resurrection that in this life or the next, justice will reign forth. God will address evil and establish justice. It will happen. If Christ is alive, and he is, then so is his work of justice. Is this not the hope of the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is not a political strategy. Rather, it is the advancement of the gospel that transforms hearts, which renews family and brings justice to communities. Because the gospel addresses human sin. And when you address human sin, you address human injustice. And let us not forget again, that Jesus was executed by the unjust convergence of hypocritical religion and imperial power. Yet when he was raised from the dead, he made it clear such power had no authority over him nor his kingdom. In every religion, God remains aloof when it comes to suffering and injustice. But in Christ, we have one who has entered into it and overcome it. This is why if you read history, Christians do not look at how awful things look. They believe that with the power of Christ through the gospel, we won't recognize this place before long. When William Wilberforce came to faith, 
he thought uh, he should leave politics. He worked in, uh, he was a legislator in Britain. He worked in parliament. He was a politician. John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace, told, told him, don't leave politics. God has brought you here. What is a matter of justice you can fight for? And he chose the end of slavery. And on his deathbed, it was witnessed. William Carey, who's considered the father of the modern missionary movement, goes over to India and spends years addressing the abuse of women, rank poverty, and political corruption. Because of the advancement of the gospel, he left behind written language, schools, freedom for people who had never experienced it before. Where the gospel advances, justice will be made real. Well, in the time that remains, uh, I took several out. Um, I just want to give you just a few bullet points. It's what the Bible has to say about justice. Just a few. Uh, I took several out, so, so we, you'll be done, we'll be done about four hours instead of five. Number one, justice is a gospel. It is a Christian concern. Unfortunately, what we've done is, is, is uh, more liberal theologians have made the gospel only about justice. And so conservative theologians are afraid to touch it because we don't want to sound like liberals. And as a result, we've, we've, we've denied essentially what the Bible says is pretty consistent with what the Bible says. By addressing human sin, we address human injustice. Although we need to be careful to confuse the gospel with a social gospel, one that's just about uh, issues of the here and now, we at the same time understand that the recovery of the gospel is the recovery of shalom. Consider, for example, just, just to highlight just one section of the Bible, the minor prophets, or just the prophets in general. Amos 5.15, hate evil, love good, Establish justice in the gate. The gate is where the movers and shakers of a city were. The politicians, economic leaders, all that sort of stuff. Isaiah 117, learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Micah 6, 8, probably the most famous one. God has told you, old man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly before your God? Very clear, not took out about a half a dozen more that we, we could read. Jesus stands in a long line of prophets who speak the same thing. Again, I took more verses out. Let me just give you one. Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. These you ought to have done Without neglecting the other. You see, he's saying it's, 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 it's clickbait, it's slacktivism, it's religion. You're so focused on the minor things, you neglect the major things. You're tithing your spice rack while the poor are outside your gates with nothing to eat. Care about justice, for God does. God is the one who liberated slaves out of Egypt, God is the one who sent reluctant prophets to a city to call them to repentance. God is the one who brings judgment upon those who would do evil on a massive scale. You can't escape it in the Bible. The second thing, justice is bigger. Biblical justice is bigger than politics. 
Simply voting for a favorite candidate or party is not the primary work of biblical justice. I don't know if you notice this or not. There's no democracy in the Bible. Cornering the gospel into a political system is dangerous. The danger of confusing justice with the gospel or with a political system is, is dangerous. It is to confuse the gospel with something that it isn't. So what we think we're doing is we're saving the country by voting for a party. All the while, hate and ignorance and violence and the perversion of justice, murder and stealing and destruction and harm and abuse continues unabated. Injustice is not afraid of a stroke of the pen. Evil is not afraid of a system. Not afraid of laws. That's the nature of it. If that were the case, I would submit we should ban crime. I was was going to steal that, but apparently it's illegal now and I shouldn't do it. Now, what I'm not saying is that the state has no role in justice. Of course it does. Martin Luther King Jr. was right in saying that anti-lynching laws may not make the white man love me, but I may not be lynched. I think there's some real wisdom in that, truth in that. However, I'm concerned that increasingly on the right, not to mention the left, is among believers is the idea that, well, I voted for the right guy. What else am I supposed to do? All the while, the poor are outside of our gates. The hungry, the thirsty, the needy, those lost in addiction and sick. Do we not care enough to do more than to vote twice a year in primaries and general election? Actively defending, supporting the cause of the oppressed and the outcast and the poor is important that does require government involvement. Yes, but it's got to be more than that. Our primary concern is not the kingdom of men, it's the kingdom of God who draws and demands everyone come and repents. If justice could be achieved through the stroke of a pen, we would have found utopia a long time ago. Finally, final justice will arrive at the coming of Christ. We don't have time for this. You can read Isaiah 11 for yourself. This is the passage where he speaks that when the Messiah comes and his kingdom arrives, the lion will lay down with the lamb. The little boy will play at the snake's uh, 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 pit, right? The, the poison the snake's pit. He will advocate for the poor and judge the wicked. And righteousness, it says, will be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. I love that. We are longing not for another election or for another movement or for this or that. We are longing for, we are hoping for the assurance that comes with Christ. The day will come when we will not need walls or gates for sin will be thrown into the fire, the lake of fire. Come, Lord Jesus, quickly. I think one of the best speeches Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. ever gave was his last He wasn't supposed to give a speech that day. He was going to just rest a little early that night, but there was uh, a meeting just not far from his hotel uh, that that they invited him. They really wanted him to come. And then when he came, they really wanted him to speak naturally. Um, And so he got up and uh, gave an impromptu speech. Can I read just some of that? These are his last public words. It's all right to talk about long white robes over yonder and all of its symbolism. 
But ultimately, people want some suits and dresses and shoes to wear down here. It's all right to talk about streets flowing with milk and honey, but God has commanded us to be concerned about the slums down here and his children who can't eat three squares meal a day. It's all right to talk about the new Jerusalem, but one day God's preacher must talk about the new New York, the new Atlanta, the new Philadelphia, the new Los Angeles, the new Memphis, Tennessee. Or what about the new Frankfort, Kentucky? This is what we have to do. And then his conclusion is this. I love this. Well, again, this is the, he, he, is, he is assassinated the next day. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. It really doesn't matter with me uh, now because I've been to the mountaintop, referencing Moses. I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people, we will get to the promised land. Isn't that the hope that we have in the gospel? Assured to us by the resurrection of Jesus? Can't you, from the advantage of the mountaintop, see the promised land that God is doing when people come to faith? Isn't that what you want? If Christ is risen, it will be done. I want you, before we end, to look at the last two verses of this passage. Last three verses. Verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. That's encouraging. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Here are some of their names. Among them were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Do you see it? Do you see it? When God gets sinners, he will bring about righteousness. Folks, our job is to bring sinners to a Savior. And the benefits of that is the truth, the hope, and the justice that we all long for. But don't bypass the resurrection to get there. It's the only means that we will ever arrive. Have you been to the mountaintop? Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would be so kind as to move us to faith.